Hello and welcome to episode number 181 of the Nerd Pro Quo podcast. Really excited about this episode, so I'm going to try and keep the intro and everything as short as humanly possible because uh, super excited to have our guest, uh, William James, poet, former hardcore uh, rocker, uh, train enthusiast. Uh, you'll hear a lot more about that in the actual episode, but uh, just uh, the quick plugs and one or two things that we need to go over. So the plug as of the past couple of weeks is the Ranger Zone on November 3rd, Saturday, November 3rd at Branded Saloon, Branded Saloon that is on the corner of Bergen and Vanderbilt Avenue in Crowd Heights, Brooklyn. That is a free show at 8 p.m. Combination Poetry and Comedy. Also, we are going to be going back to live tweeting a bunch of things. Maybe the Flash from the Flash. I believe the Flash has come back. This is this is how up on things that I am. I have no idea where the Flash is back. We are most likely also going to be live tweeting Doctor Who uh, a little bit later uh, when this goes up. So we are live tweeting Doctor Who every Sunday night on BBC America at 8 p.m. If you like this episode, just putting that in there. Uh, follow us on Twitter, at NerdProQuo, on Twitter for all the updates and the goodies and all that stuff. Let us know on Twitter if you dig this episode. And uh, tell your friends, tell your friends, and tell their friends. The same day as always, click subscribe. If you like it, leave a review on iTunes. That does actually help us out. A little bit of news that we will get into in a future episode about uh, Daredevil season three, but uh, season three, but apparently Luke Cage has also been canceled. There's going to be some discussion on that, but uh, just uh, you know, ele nerd elephants in the room that I feel like if we don't, if I don't address them in the intro, it's like, uh, what are you not keeping up on things? They are keeping up on things. There are a uh, couple other things that are going to be happening, and uh, yeah, we're going to talk about it. Uh, in upcoming episodes, and there are more guests coming in future episodes as well. But in the meantime, this episode, so excited, William James, Nerdpreneur Podcast, episode number 181. Yep. Hey, man. Uh, so uh, introduce yourself, tell the people who you are, and however, usually when I ask artists, it's like however you choose to define yourself, uh, and then we'll get kind of get into this. Word. Um, I'm William James. I used to live in Pennsylvania. Now I live in New Hampshire, which is not entirely unlike Pennsylvania. Uh, and I am an aging punk rocker, avid train enthusiast, and sometimes when I remember how, a poet. Cool. Uh, so let's kind of go back a little bit uh, and just kind of, because I don't remember... I'm pretty sure I know approximately when we met. I don't know exactly how we met, but I'm 90% sure it was at Nats in 2011 in Boston. Uh, I would not, guess that has to be it. Yeah. Um, if not slightly before that, Nats, when we came out to New Hampshire, uh, I was on Loser Slam, and I think we came out uh, for some... We just randomly came out to New Hampshire like that summer before Nats, and we might have met Net then, but I'm not. 100%. No, I don't think it would have been then because I was still in. I'm still in Pennsylvania, so I was still with uh, Steel City out of Pittsburgh. Uh, we did come to New Hampshire. We came to Manchester in December of 2009, 
and we did a regional with, and I'm pretty sure Loser's Time was that because I remember, uh, I remember Chad Anderson and I want to say Connor. Yeah. Doing doing the hype man poem. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. That so, was, that so Loser was, was there. Yeah. No, we met then. I don't think no, because I wasn't on Loser Slam until 2011. So it must have been a 2011 Nats. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't remember specifically how we met, but I can probably. There was that year at some point. Well, number one, I think everyone at who is was part of like the New England poetry scene basically passed through Connor Dooley's room. At some point during that week, at least that's what it seemed to be. So it's possible we met then, but also there was like just a a random crew of just nerds one of the days that we just kind of. I'm ninety percent sure that's actually when we met. There was like a group of like people from like New Hampshire and a couple of the other New England states, and we just kind of. I think it was like two of you had like lightsaber apps on your phone. That sounds like a Sam Title moment to me. <laughs> yeah. um, again, I was actually officially in in 2011. I was on the Steel City team from Pittsburgh. Okay. And while I love my Steel City poets dearly, and I am proud as fuck to have been a part of that reading, I also have a pretty uh, epic reputation for immediately abandoning Pittsburgh as soon as we got to nationals so I could go hang out with Slam for Your Die Poets because (laughs) I got to see Pittsburgh all the time and I got to see Manchester folk once a year. Yeah. Um, So like other than when we were other than when Steel City was in about I was probably with New Hampshire more than anybody else. (laughs) Sure. and, you know, now I live there and am part of that reading, so clearly it was working towards something. So when did poetry sort of start for you? Did it coincide with punk? I uh, And then we'll kind of get into... I'm always a little bit, a tiny bit fuzzy on this, whether you were in bands or whether you were just in a scene and got thrown into a couple people's LPs or how, what, what was the deal there? Kind of all of the above. Okay. Um, uh, now, my, my path to poetry is, is very specific. Um, I was, and to this day still am, but uh, was really into the band Converge. In 2004, they signed to Epitaph Records, uh, and I was like, oh, I'm going to check out all the other bands that were smart enough to be on this label, and it just so happened that that was roughly the same time as what Sage Francis was signed to Epitaph, so I found Sage Francis through Converge, and then I found Buddy Wakefield through Sage Francis, and that all culminated... Uh, and I spent maybe two years from like 2007-ish to 2009-ish um, watching all of the YouTube videos that I could find, which this well predates uh, like Button or Slam Find or Right About Now or any of the uh, video channels that exist now. Um, so it was a lot of just, hey, let me find really poorly filmed uh like shaky cam videos that somebody bootlegged from their university 
Um, and I think, was it, uh, was, is it Speakeasy New York? Or, or, there's some channel from New York City that filmed a bunch of shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, actually, uh, it is Sarah Kay's dad, Jeffrey Kay. Uh, he has two different channels, and he would come out uh, a lot of times when Sarah was performing, back when Sarah was slamming, and also uh, when she's on tour. So he would shoot them, and that's where like you would get those really... Speakeasy was, is definitely Jeffrey Kay's, uh, uh, just because we're bringing it up. Shout out to him, Jeffrey Kay. Uh, he shot a lot of uh, New York stuff, especially Bower Poetry Club, and... Yeah, it was like the only stuff that I think for a while was like, this look, this is actually like well shot and all of that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, you know, 10 years later, we've got, you know, we've got the Button Poetry Channel. We've got people like Mason Granger, like straight up, like doing multi, like sometimes multi-camera angles, like professional, like they know what they're doing. Uh, but none of that would probably have existed if it wasn't for uh, channels like like uh, like that one where it was somebody has a camera and they're going to film. Um, and that was really instrumental in me starting to find that a thing existed because like many other people from incredibly rural communities, like I went to... I went to a school, my graduating class when I was a senior in high school was 63. Wow. Uh, as of the 2010 census, the population of my hometown is 450. So when I, you know, when I say rural, I mean like more than one guy that I graduated high school with brought his date to prom in a tractor. Wow. That's so, amazing. <laughs> I didn't have any kind of poetry background. It's not like, it's not that there wasn't a reading in my city. It's that I didn't know poetry could be a thing other than the, you know, like Shakespeare sonnet that gets shoved down your throat one semester in eighth grade English. Right. Uh, and then, you know, being from an incredibly rural area, being from a town that socially, like, has an incredibly large amount of animosity towards anything artistic or anything, uh, you know, guarantee that if you say the word poetry to most of the people that I went to school with, uh, any one of a dozen incredibly uncreative homophobic squares are probably going to come out of their mouth because that's what it is yeah. uh, to them. Um, you know, and like, also when you live in, in small towns like that, not only is there already an inherent bias against intellectualism and anything that seems like uh, it's artsy and because there's that like there's that whole chip on your shoulder where the this you know the perception is oh, all these folks in the big city think they're so smart because they got all that book learning and they think they're better than us um, which oftentimes the perception is fed by you know, arrogance from those people who really do seem to think that they're better than us. Um, but also, like, you're in a town of 450 people, and most of them do things like farming. Um, this sounds really, really antiquated, and it sounds like I grew up in, like, the Great Depression, but a lot of people just don't have time for anything that isn't functional. 
Yeah. And poetry is decorative. Poetry is not going to put a meal on the table. Poetry is not going to go out and harvest the corn. Uh, so really the attitude always was there's no time for this. Uh, and, you know, also why would you waste your time studying that when you could be reading your Bible? All kinds of things yeah. that are absolutely stereotypical of incredibly tiny conservative towns. So I didn't even know that poetry could exist in anything that wasn't, you know, Shakespearean or earlier form. Uh, and then I found, you know, so I found punk rock, like most left-leaning kids from small towns. With, that, that was going to be my next question, is how did punk rock and, like, hardcore come in? And when uh, did that come in? So, I mean, the the... The short answer there is I was only allowed to listen to Christian music because I grew up in a church home. And one day I went to the local Christian book and gift store and I found a tooth and nail record sampler called Songs from the Penalty Box Volume 2. Oh my God, and, I have that. And I, I bought it because <laughs> it was $5 and that was what my allowance was. And I was allowed to buy it sight unseen because, well, it came from the Christian bookstore. Uh, so I got introduced to all of those bands, like, and they're, you know, bands like Zayo, Training for Utopia, Living Sacrifice, like, are still in regular rotation. Like, I own vinyl records by these bands. Yeah. Uh, and I listen to them often. Um, but that was my introduction, like, listening to, listening to the song A Fall Farewell by Zayo off of Songs from the Penalty Box compilation. Um, by the way, I got a fire truck coming up behind me, so you might hear some noise. Sure. Um, like, I'm going to try to get out of their way real quick. Oh my god, are you driving? I didn't even realize, I thought you had gotten home already. I'm still driving home, I'm on speakerphone because that's legal in New Hampshire. Oh my god, <laughs> please don't die. No, it's cool. I, you, you, are, you, are, you are the second person who, who has been doing this while they were driving. The other person was in, in L.A. and in traffic. And I was just like, please don't die. He's like, we're not moving at all. It doesn't matter. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, that's probably the most wild thing that's going to happen to me on this ride home sure. is that I have to pull over for a fire truck. Sure. Um, so anyway, yeah, like I listened to – the song A Fall Farewell by Zayo on a compilation CD. And that was the first time that I discovered that there was music out there that was more aggressive than the Newsboys. Right. Uh, and that opened a whole new world for me. Uh, and this would have been probably, what, mid-90s? Like 95, 96 Yeah, yeah, I want to say 96. Well, to the second compilation? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, because, well, it had to have been, like, because uh, that album, Where Blood and Fire Bring Rest, was released in 1996. Okay, um, okay, so I so might the have... The Tooth and Nail compilation that I had, I I might have, I think I had that compilation, but I think I, have, I actually, like, encountered it way later. Which is a bizarre thing, because I grew up in New York City, but how I came to... It's... This is a tangent, <laughs> and I... <laughs> I'm going to ask you more about this, but just 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 weird parallel. Uh, so I had a friend named Mike whose uh, parents were super Christian, and one time basically saw Marilyn Manson on MTV and wouldn't allow him to listen to any music that wasn't Christian. 
So, so, but because of that, we ended up uh, at I. I've been the Purple Door three times. Hell yeah! <laughs> uh, and the, the and the funny thing is, as someone who is not even remotely Christian, you can surprising or not surprisingly, you can avoid the Christian element at like one of those festivals, like pretty easily <laughs> if you're just like here's just the bands i'm gonna go see and pod mm-hmm. i think pod headlined purple door one year it was like you know there's a very good chance we were at the same purple door because i went to that festival the year that pod blew up specifically to see them because right, 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 right. and i'm gonna go on record here because i believe that i believe that we should confront our past mistakes head on sure so I- <laughs> On record, on your podcast, for the first time ever publicly, I will say that I, William James, at one point in my life, would have fought you over the fact that P.O.D. was, in my estimation, the greatest band of all time. <laughs> I, like, went, I saw them, and they were opening up. It was, it, I can't remember what the third band was, but it was P.O.D., Chevelle, and some other band opening up for Rollins' band. And, oh my! Yeah, yeah, and 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 Henry Rollins, for some bizarre reason, just decided, I uh, even though he was the head, they were the headlining act. He was just like, I'm just gonna go on in the middle of the show. So Chevelle and Pod, I think it was Pod, had to go on after Rollins Band, and everybody had left. So it was me and five other people going to see Pod, and then we watched them and helped them bring their own gear off of. St- stage and pack it up and then literally like six months later they were had like a number one song on trl which was yeah just trippy (laughs) so because it was the mid 90s um like and the internet hadn't even really become a thing yet let alone think you know file sharing and right downloading and streaming and all that shit i followed the path that many many people from that era did I found bands that I liked, and then I scoured the back page of the liner notes, and I looked for all of the bands that they thanked, and I yeah. looked for all of the I looked for all of the pictures of them on stage and what T-shirts they were wearing, <laughs> and I did my homework. Um, you know, and again, like I, I've I've not felt as old as I do right now in a minute because I sound like one of those I sound like one of those aging punkers talking about like. Back in my day, um, but quite literally, this was like I had to beg my parents to use their check card so that I could mail order something from many states away. Right. I uh, what, um, what we ended up doing was doing going down the uh, the totem pole of opening acts. Is you would go see you would like save your money or whatever and go see like. The one band that uh, uh, was like s- kind of popular, uh, like I when I was in high school, I went the the pop punk, so I was like a huge MXPX fan for like a while. Uh, still kind of an MXPX fan, but like, uh, yeah, they, there's a whole side story there that you may or may not know about that band. <laughs> about my career, just deciding, I don't really want to be associated with Christian music anymore. You, you, you know, 
And, and if I'm not mistaken, he didn't just not want to be associated with Christian music anymore. I think he did the thing that many of us have and went, yeah, I don't believe any of this shit. Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, there's a whole... <laughs> like, I, I actually listened to his podcast, and there's, like, back, like, a couple years ago, you can go back, and there's, like, a whole thing. There's, like, a couple episodes of the podcast where he just goes through that whole process of, like, here's why I did what I did and decided what yeah. I did. and. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and, and that's a whole other conversation. Like when when you've dedicated endless years of your life, like for me, it was literally all of my formative years. Right, uh, right. Were dedicated. Like I was super Christian. I was like, ride or you know, I was like ride or die for the Bible, and I'm going to be a high school music teacher so that I can like low-key like like we'll play that uh we'll play that uh on a hymn song of philip bliss piece one year and then i'll get to explain what the song's about and even though i'll be in a public school that'll totally be like witnessing <laughs> um like that's the type of shit that i was that i was doing like uh and i got you know i got deeply into the cornerstone christian mentality like right. yeah you know, we say we say fuck, and some of us smoke and drink beer, but we're still like all about Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I don't like I don't mean to disparage any of those people because uh, one, some of them were my dearest friends. Uh, I don't for a second doubt their own sincerity. Like I think that people, I think that people who believe that way. In spite of the fact that an unfathomable amount of evil is perpetrated by people who claim to be believers, um, and like it is indisputable that like the church at large has caused immense amounts of harm to, especially you know marginalized folks uh, like the damage that has been done to the LGBTQ community by the church is going to take many generations to even yeah. start to recover. Um, and that's just one aspect of it. Yeah. But also like the people I have known who were that, like, like I said, the cornerstone Christians, the ones who are like, like, yeah, we are hippies and live on a commune together because that's how Jesus would have lived. Like, I think they truly have, like the most noble of intentions. And I think a lot of them are trying really hard to fight against the way that faith is monopolized. Yeah. Um, and I respect them immensely. And I, because evangelicalism was my biggest abuser, there's no way I will ever be able to, see eye to eye with them right and i'll never i'll never again be able to say like yeah i totally agree with you on that belief but i because i was raised in it i can appreciate that their hearts are almost always in the right place and sometimes their actions don't manage to portray that accurately yeah well it was fascinating when i would go with my friend mike we would go to see uh like one of my favorite bands still is because uh, I like I said I went the pop punk like ska route for a while so like one of my favorite bands is Five Iron Frenzy and I love Five Iron 
Uh, yeah, I, I love them, and I also just individually, like, the members of that group are also just, like, super cool people. Uh, but the, the, the interesting thing about that was going the purple door and just being kind of amazed. Like, number one, it's like they're – because there's so many different bands there and, and there's, like – you start to, as someone who was like very anti-religion, was not raised religious at all, to kind of see it as like, oh, Christianity is a spectrum. <laughs> like, and there were some, there were also, we were kind of surprised because there were two of us who was like, we're not, we're not religious at all. We're completely secular. We just like a lot of these bands. Uh, how many just, just openly just like, yeah, we're, we're here for the same reason. People are there. <laughs> Uh, you know, again, like, <laughs> I lived this for a good number of years, so I have uh, a fairly encyclopedic knowledge of how that how that whole game worked, um, especially in that era. Yeah. Before, before Bandcamp became a thing, before streaming was a thing, like, in 2018, you can legitimately go from... Uh, Hey, wouldn't it be cool if we were in a band to, hey, here's our full-length album yeah. in a week if you want to. I yeah. don't think I'd recommend it, but like the the entry point is so accessible anymore. But back then, like none of those doors were opened or even existed. So, you know, you could scrape and crawl your way through trying to maybe get somebody to pay attention to you as a secular band. Or you could just throw the word Jesus into your lyrics two or three times every five minutes, and church groups would just throw money at you. Yeah, <laughs> of course there, uh, are, there are also plenty of bands that could uh, that threw the, uh, Jesus and and uh, it was just like, oh wait, that's they're not a Christian band. I've heard that side. You know, there's there's those guys too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so how did like? Did being in bands or being involved with bands, did that start where you were in Pennsylvania? Or how did you... Or... Uh, okay, so all of these things are... All, all these different facets of my life all converge to some center, which is me being a poet in 2018. Um so I went down the Cornerstone Road and listened to all the Tooth and Nail bands and listened to all the bands that were way smaller than them. Uh, at some point in high school, I found myself uh, making friends with some like cool youth group kids from across the town uh, that were in a Christian ska band, and I played the trombone. Wow! So wow! So all of a sudden, I was in a Christian ska band, and we went nowhere. We played a couple of church shows, and we played a festival in western Pennsylvania that was called Godstock because, you know, evangelical Christianity is creative like that. So can you – wait, back up a second. <laughs> can you still play? Uh, how did you – could you play then, or it was just like, here's your instrument that you're going to I mean – no, like I, like, I was a band geek, so, like, I could play the instrument, and I could play it fairly well, um, and I already used to, like, at that point in my life, you know, like, I'm in, a, I'm in high school band, and my band director wants me to practice at least a half an hour every night, and 
sometimes that practice would be playing along with my Supertones CD. Like, <laughs> oh, Supertones. Uh, you we, know we actually, how happy it makes. I don't know if we've ever had this conversation, but just like <laughs> bringing up some of these bands, I'm just like, oh, the Supertones. I remember uh, these bands. So, yeah, so like I knew how to play that kind of music. Um, and I kind of liked it and I really wanted to be in a band. Um, so I joined and then like a couple of years later we were done because that's the life cycle of bands when you're in high school. Yeah. Um, and then, so that's what, uh, 98, 99 ish. Um, I graduated high school in 2000. Uh, I went to college to be a band teacher and then, uh, third semester in hello family history of undiagnosed mental health issues uh so like my brain decided to in, in, inform me that it was crazy um and my college decided to inform me that the reason my brain was trying to kill me was because i hadn't prayed hard enough um and then I didn't leave my dorm room for three weeks of my third semester, including the week of finals. Uh, and so I was invited to take a semester off to reevaluate my priorities. And I have so far taken 34 semesters off, and my priorities are fairly well reevaluated. Right. So you were at like, uh, a Christian college? Or... Uh, yeah, no, I went to, fuck it, I'll put their name out there. I went to Messiah College in Grantham, Pennsylvania. Okay. Uh, and their, their like whole tagline was like, rigorously academic and unapologetically Christian. Yeah. Uh, and like, they were founded, I believe, by the Quakers or the Friends Society or something. So like, they didn't have American flags anywhere on campus except for the soccer field and the gym because those were NCAA requirements. Right. Uh, um, so, like, I went from evangelical, like, the other thing is, when I say evangelical, I mean I kind of was raised in a cult, because I was brought up in what is known as the conservative holiness movement, okay. so even being in a Christian punk band was, a, like, an act of rebellion as far yeah, as yeah, yeah, yeah. that went. And then I went to this, like, kind of hippy-dippy, like, fairly, like, as far as, you know, as far as my, my outlook you know, what are my values and my ethics in 2018? That college was nowhere near as liberal as I am. Right. But for what I was then, fairly liberal. Um, yeah. You know, that was, that was my introduction to such radical concepts as, hey, maybe war is kind of awful. And, right. hey, you know, that death penalty thing that we're so excited about sort of goes against one of the commandments, literally. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, well, so you're, you're not the you're not the first person to tell me that like Quaker kind of founded schools like that. There there are interesting ways that that could go, even though they're still technically Christian schools. It's just like the Quakers have a whole. There's a whole interesting where they're like they're still like you know super religious, but they're weirdly liberal in some ways. I mean, some like some branches of them are wildly radical. Like yeah. to to the point that I could pretty easily not be even remotely shocked if you told me that like some Antifa dust up happened and like there were some Quakers involved. Like yeah, 
I, I believe in my heart of hearts that a lot of them uh, looked at the story of Jesus in the temple, like turning over tables and whipping people, and went, "Oh, that's what we're called towards." Right. Uh, and I, you know, I fuck with that. I like those people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but so while I was at while I was at Messiah, I was part of you know some of the like. Like, we're the, the awkward underground punk kids at this liberal Christian college. Right. Um, and, you know, so I started, like, being involved with groups that were booking, like, the hardcore shows on campus. Um, you know, we booked Norma Jean before people really gave a shit who they were. Um, we booked Tantrum of the Muse, like, millions of times because they were kind of from that area. Right. Um, all the, like artsy, obscure, like, weird for the sake of weird kind of hardcore bands that were tangentially related to Christendom. Yeah. Uh, so I was involved with that, and then I failed out or dropped out or reevaluated my priorities, whatever euphemism you want to use. Uh, came home, uh, <coughs> went back to living with my parents for a while, uh, many, many things changed in my life. And then one day in 2004, uh, the following things happened. I was hanging out by myself at an Eaton Park restaurant in Clarion, Pennsylvania, and I saw this dude with a mohawk tattoos and uh, Doc Martens walk in. And I just went, ah, we're going to be friends. <laughs> and yep. at, at approximately 2 o'clock in the morning over many cups of coffee, uh, it was conversationally revealed that I play the trombone and he wanted to start a band that sounded kind of like the, I, I don't know who he, it was probably like Mighty Mighty Boston's or Real Big Fish or whatever fucking punk ska band was huge in 2004. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By that's that point, on the tail end of like it's starting to go like. Yeah, like it had already gone rotten. We yeah. just hadn't thrown it away yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, at this point, I hated, like, I, I had decided that ska was not the thing for me. I do not enjoy it. Uh, I have fond memories of certain, like, I'll go back and listen to a Five Iron song out of nostalgia, but there's very, very few bands that have horn sections that I even care to listen to. Right. Um, and at, in 2004, I did not want to be in a ska band. I wanted to be in a hardcore punk band and I wanted to scream and yell, but the only, but I played the trombone and that was my avenue into a band. Sure. So I joined, I joined the band and then immediately mutinied and I was like, okay, so I'm going to write horn parts that sound like second guitar <laughs> instead of ska. And that's amazing. <laughs> going to do vocals where I just yell. Like, I'm going to do Dan Wyant from Zayo vocals sometimes. Um, and it was just like cacophonous mess of noise and I loved it and we, we were a band for, again, about two years. Um, played quite a few shows regionally um, and we started making friends with people that were in bands. Uh, started playing shows. There was like the same four or five of us uh, that would do shows together. Like we would play at this teen center or we'd go out to do boys and play the, the skating rink. Um, 
And then my band dissolved. I had just started writing things down in a notebook because I was going to take the next step of being like, hey, can I maybe try to start writing some of the lyrics to songs too? Um, and then the band broke up. And I had all of these pages of lyrics that I didn't know what to do with. Right. Uh, at the time the band broke up, there was a venue that it was near and dear to our hearts. We had played, it was this like Christian coffee shop that put shows on in their basement. And they were again, kind of like the, the radical cornerstone Christians. So they were like, you don't have to be a Christian band. We just would ask that you not swear or blaspheme in your music, but we'll book anybody like be respectful of the space. But anybody's welcome. We just want to make a thing happen in this town. of not very many people. Um, there's a coffee so shop that does a Friday night comedy show that's similar uh, here in Brooklyn, where it's the, yeah, I know so, the people, and it's it's actually run. The coffee shop is run by the church. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and you know, to, to spin out on another side tangent, like I honestly believe that if you're going to be a member of a church, that's the shit you should be doing. Like churches are supposed to be hubs of community, yeah. not indoctrination centers. Yeah. Um, and I've known some churches that do that very well, and I've known some churches that do that very poorly. Um, anyway, so this cafe, we, my band played that shows at this cafe all the time, and then the ownership changed, the cafe got sold, and they were going to shut down. And they said, hey, we're going to do one last big show. We want anybody and everybody who's ever played shows here is welcome to like, we're going to do this whole day long thing. Like we're going to start early in the morning and we're going to go until we're not allowed to make noise anymore. Um, but my, so we agreed to do the show and then broke up. And as is often the case with breakups, we kind of hated each other for a while. So I said, look, none of us are talking to each other, but I really love what this space was about. Um, I'll just come do like, I, you know, I had like started to flirt around with like watching Henry Rollins do his spoken word thing. Right. I was like, I'll just come read some of these lyrics that I wrote and see what happens. Um, and then, you know, I got into Converge and then because of Converge, I got into Sage Francis. Because of Sage Francis, I got into Buddy Wakefield. Because of Buddy Wakefield, I realized that poems that had the same energy as punk and hardcore shows did performance-wise were totally a thing that you were allowed to do. Yeah. Um, and I found Slam, and I, I rent, I like borrowed all of the Slam, like the Deaf Poetry Slam DVDs from Netflix, and I watched the Slam Nation documentary, and that planted the seed and I went, I want to do that. Um, turns out there was a slam venue in Pittsburgh, the, the steel city slam at the shadow lounge. I started going, found a community of writers. One thing led to another. And then all of a sudden it's 2010 and not very many years after watching slam nation going, wow, I really, really want to do that one day. All of a sudden I was doing that. Um, and now here we are. Right. It's, it's weird. It's amazing. Like the, how many times like the same handful of artists get brought up as far as like, and not, not particularly to slam, but just like, uh, like hardcore. It's just like, 
Converge seems to literally be like, like, forgive the pun, a place where many things converge <laughs> for people. It's just, it's, I, it amazes me. And then, like, just the the Sage Francis Buddy Wakefield connection, where it's just like people who are into hip hop suddenly are coming to poetry shows and sort of vice versa. Like, it's, you know, the overlap. I mean,. There. Come on, I'm a white dude who got into Poetry Slam in the late 2000s. It would be dishonest to say that <laughs> I wasn't brought there, at least in part, by Buddy Wakefield. Yeah, and yeah. I absolutely tried super hard to rip off his style so much Yeah, uh, for like a solid year. When, <laughs> you know, cause when, when you discover an art form, you don't know what your voice is, so the only thing you can do is try to... like sound as much like the people who are doing what you want to be doing yeah, as possible yeah, exactly and we've all done it and anybody who says that they didn't bite another artist when they got started is a fucking liar yeah and also the thing about slam is like there's writing poetry and writing poetry for yourself but it's if you're getting on stage there's a and i've i've brought this up with poets a lot this is like we talk about a lot of like the things and like the ways that it helps us. And of course, all of those things are true, but the getting up and doing it in front of people, there's a certain element to it. It's just like, you no, know, it's performative. And there's people who you probably have seen that are the reason that you start to emulate and you start to sound like. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, and I've said this, uh, you know, in workshops, I've said this, like, when I've been mentoring younger writers, uh, it's inescapable that you're going to sound like your influences. The trick is to make your influences as diverse as possible so that they all start kind of mixing together. And before you know it, you're accidentally unique. Right. Yeah. 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 And that's why like, you know, when, when people get all like, when people get, sand all up their drawers about like, oh, diversity is like being shoved down our throats. Like, why the fuck wouldn't you want diversity? Like, not even taking into account the, you know, the the social justice angle of why diversity is not only important but necessary. Like, just looking at it like strictly as an artist. Literally, there's nothing better that you can do to like become a better artist in your field than expose yourself to as many different voices and styles and experiences as possible. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I, for, I think it was John, John Sands who said once it was just like, it was just like, as far as like getting better as it's just like, if, if all you're listening to or all you're reading is slam poets, you should probably be reading and listening to people who aren't slam poets <laughs> exclusively. Yeah. yeah poets. Agreed. Uh, hey, can I, Real quick, like I've been on my I've been on my car's Bluetooth. Can I just like disconnect for a second um, yeah, yeah, yeah. and just switch over to hands, handset? Like I don't even think I'm gonna hang up. I think I just need to like yeah, yeah, cut no out. Second. All right, give me a second. Yeah. All right, you still there? Yeah. Word. Um, Do you even sound yeah. better now? <laughs> oh, cool. Probably because I'm not yelling at a device like a foot and a half away from me. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Uh, yeah, like I, I, I fully agree with that. Like, if you're only reading slam poets and you're only, yeah, if your only exposure to poetry is watching videos on YouTube, yeah, then 
that is the first thing you need to fix because there's like, yes, you can learn a lot about how to be a successful slam poet by watching people on the internet, which is, you can learn so very little about how to be a good writer (laughs) by watching videos of performance. Yeah. Also, also the, the, the oxymoron of successful slam poet. (laughs) It's just like, uh, I, I've had, especially weirdly recently that I don't slam regularly really anymore. Or, uh, when I was talking about before we started recording, like the sort of what has happened nationally to the poetry slam scene, uh, happened locally to the New York city slam scene, <laughs> uh, without getting into any details, uh, it's very similar things that, uh, uh, ex- Especially some of the stuff actually start, as you may or may not know, started in New York, uh, and then, like, uh, got you know spread around because people were like touring or or you know the National Poetry Slam was just like, oh, here's what happened there. Uh, so I haven't been to a reading in a while, but just that the discussion of like successful slam poets like that's not a thing <laughs> yeah um it is a strange term to me i mean i i i don't know what you define successful in anything as because like what's a successful artist oh is it somebody whose art has been seen by the like many 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 people maybe yeah i mean my, my so- yeah my whole thing about success is like is like okay what is success for you for your art form is i mean that's different for every person but generally speaking uh my thing is just like are you making i mean even if it's like doing workshops and all that's like are you making a living doing it are you sort of happy with what you're doing well then you're successful like <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, that's hard to argue against. Yeah. It's but like, then there's also the... If you're defining success by whether or not you're able to make a living for it, right. then you're roping art into this capitalist noose. <laughs> right, no, I mean, I get that. I, I mean, I totally get that, too. Uh, but But I also, like... It, it depends on like what is your what are you trying to accomplish? I think is is at the end of the day. It's just like and also are you are you? I mean, happy might be the wrong word for it, but it's just like are you satisfied with what you're doing creatively? Uh, yeah, are you fulfilled? Yeah, I mean, satisfied and, is even a bad word because it's like if you're if you're too satisfied, then you might start making crappy art. Right. I I, I think really it's. It comes down to, are you fulfilled by what you're doing? Right. Um, also, I think it's super important. And this, you know, every time I've ever been asked, um, I think it's super important to be honest with yourself as to what your personal goals are. Like, you know, I've been moderately successful in slam in the sense that I have won individ- I've won slams before. I've made teams many times, um, five random people, usually at a bar that were picked not more than a few minutes before the slam started, occasionally have decided they liked mine the best. 
Um, and because of that, especially in, you know, especially in New Hampshire, like Slam for Your Die has turned into this reading that is kind of the starting ground for a lot of people. Like right. we have, we have a fairly high amount of turnover because a lot of our regulars are only regulars for a couple of years, either because they're students or because they're transient and for one reason or another. We have so many people who this is like their introduction to performance poetry. We have, you know, we, we, we on our open mic list, we have a reserved slots for new and first time readers um, to make sure that like people who have never read at our venue before are given a priority over anybody else. Right. Yeah. And every week we have at least one person on the newer first time reader list every single week. Like that's the type of venue that we've become. I love it. It's yeah. such a wonderful thing to me, but it means we have a lot of people who are kind of green and they come in and they watch me or they watch um, Christopher Klaus or they watch Red Mianza. Um, You know, I'm just kind of rattling off some of the names of people who are on our team most right. recently, but like, they watch those who kind of like have figured out what we're doing enough to at least occasionally be successful right? and come to us for advice. Like we have, we have a few times a year we do a rookie slam and that's usually like a cash prize and you, you're, you can't compete if you've ever slammed anywhere before. Oh, that's a fantastic idea. I mean, I love it because we got <laughs> again. We have a we have a young crowd sometimes, so we've got people who like are terrified by the slam list. They don't want to go up against the people that they've seen week after week. Like they're scared of that. But right. if you put them up against each other, yeah, then all of a sudden it's like, hey, I can totally do this. Um, so you know, we've had people like first time slammers and I get them coming up to me and going like, so like, what would you like? What do you think I should do? I don't know. Like what poems do I pick? Like, how do I strategize? Um, and my answer always is the very first thing you have to do is be honest with yourself. Like brutally honest. Are you trying to end the night with the highest cumulative score or are you trying to end the night being artistically fulfilled right or are you trying to do both it's right. not that you can't do both it's that it's very difficult to do both because it's a competition yeah yeah um, I, and i, I, ran I lose good. more slams than i win mostly on purpose yeah <laughs> like, oh, that's what i was just gonna say has there been so many times where i was just like i was like wow i care more about the there was a very short period where I ca actually care about the competition, and then a period of time, like the times that I actually made uh, teams, where the times I was like, oh, yeah, I just don't, I don't, I don't care. I'm just gonna do whatever I feel like doing. Um, but uh, going back just a tiny bit, how did you end up uh, number one, being like becoming friends? I mean. They're pretty easy to make friends with a lot of the people at Slam for Your Die. But how did you end up kind of making friends with them? And how did you end up deciding to move there? <laughs> um, so like, I, like I, I mentioned quite a while ago, because yeah. 
Jesus Christ, I'm a verbose motherfucker. Uh, Pittsburgh came out and did a regional with Slam for a Die in December of 2009. We drove 16 hours in a blizzard. Um, and Slam for a Die was hosting it, so they were one of the competing teams. Right. Um, and I went, and I don't remember who all was on what team. I know that I saw Max, Max Kessler do... Uh, a couple of poems, and I can't remember them, but one was about, one, I think he did a poem about John, the legend of John Henry. Right. And he also had a poem that was about, like, Motorhead or metal or some yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah, that's, um, <laughs> I think it was about Motorhead. I, I can't even remember now. Probably. I yeah. mean, it, for the sake of the legend, we're going to say it was about Motorhead. And, <laughs> sure, why not? <laughs> uh, you know, and then Sam Title was doing his Ramones poem, uh, and Mark Pallas was doing his ACDC rocker poem. And I had this moment where, like, I felt like I had found my people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so the, Pittsburgh, I love the city. I love the scene. Um, I, will, I will go to bat for Steel City Slam as an organization and Steel City Poets as people. Pittsburgh is a, t- is a city that is very geographically isolated, um especially in slam sure they're not the only ones but yeah (laughs) uh no no we're not the only ones but like those who those other towns know like when you're geographically isolated you don't get the intermingling of influence yeah like you do uh i mean up here in new england where there's like 26 different readings within an hour of each other yeah (laughs) um you don't have necessarily a slam for your die voice you don't have a cantab voice you have new england poets because yeah. we all show up to each other's readings and we all just kind of uh influence each other um pittsburgh we're very isolated and then for me being an hour and a half away from pittsburgh proper even more isolated you just kind of do your thing and stick to it sure and so it turned you know i was at the time like i was the only person in steel city slam who was writing poems about going punk shows or who was writing poems that had references to hardcore songs in them um and because i was so isolated and hadn't yet been exposed to the world at large i thought that i was literally the only person that did that Yeah. And then I came to this regional and I saw I was like, oh wait, oh shit. Like these are other people who are writing about that. Like <clears throat> so I started hanging out with them and then <clears throat> excuse me. Uh I made then shortly thereafter I made the team for Nationals in two thousand ten, which was my first year going. And so I like I show up to Twin Cities in, you know, in Minnesota. And there's 400 some poets and all of a sudden like, holy shit, I'm like across this, like I'm sitting across the room from fucking Jason Carney, who I just watched 26 times in a row on the internet. Right. <laughs> um, so I was like a little starstruck and a little shell shocked and wanted to just like go talk to other poets because that's what you always want to do. The first time you ever go to a national poetry slam is like, I want to make friends with everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I went, maybe not I went, the, I went as maybe an not the best member. idea. Yeah, I went in as an audience member before I went as being on a team, which is kind of I don't know. I like I feel like going as an audience member and making friends with people is is like was actually ended up being a better way of doing. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, you know, part of the problem is, as we're finding out, like, more or less weekly, Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of shitbags that nested in that community. Yeah. Well, and a lot of us didn't know anything about it. <laughs> well, well, my, the other thing, just as uh, someone who uh, <laughs> just, um, I, don't, I, I guess I got super lucky. Uh, is that I started going to slams and my sister had done it in college, so I was already vaguely familiar with all the people who were in the room in New York. But then there were like I just was going to like read on the open mic and just kind of watch the show. And then there yeah. was someone uh, who uh, is now moved on from Slam and is doing other stuff, but it was like really pushing me to do it. And she was just like, she was just like, uh, so this is great. Uh, there's a lot of support you know, for, for different reasons. And she went, it's also high school. Uh, and she yeah. also said for, for all <laughs> intents and purposes, there's a lot of shit bet. No, she literally said it's high school. Be careful who you trust. And I went, okay. <laughs> yeah. Like and I did was, not that have that right at the beginning. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, like, I, okay. I went, you know, I went into it and just went, Oh my God, all my heroes are here. Right. Um, and, you know, and like the, the, the narratives that we push as poets, especially at, at the national poetry slam, the narrative that gets pushed is, you know, like the fucking Olive Garden slogan, like we're here, we're all family. Right. And that's good. Um, I love, I love what the national poetry slam has been as a community for so many, You're right. but it's also a little problematic or worrisome when you're a rookie poet and everybody's telling you like, this is your family. Like, it's almost like you're expected to just accept everybody. Yeah. Um, and I think we've started to turn away from that. Yeah. Um, and not that we've turned away from the idea that this community at large can be a family. Right. Because it absolutely can. Like there yeah. are people that I met there are people that I met at National Poetry Slam um, who are, like, some of my, like, most trusted friends. And, you know, there are people that I call my family gladly and proudly. But there are also people who I was exposed to at the National Poetry Slam at one point or another that I <laughs> will gladly keep my distance from because... Yeah. It's also people forget. <laughs> yeah, it's also people forget, and I'm I'm sure like the overlap in subcultures. This is another thing that I kind of wanted to talk to you about. Where it's like if you're part of like so here's the poetry community, here's the hardcore community, and you just start to see these weird parallels. Where it's just like, oh yeah, there's shitty people everywhere, even though our ethos is supposed to be a X, Y, or Z. You know? What yeah, I mean? yeah. And also just like, uh, people, I think largely as a community we kind of all thought about it under like under wraps we were like we're a community who have kind of messed up people who are all getting ready all getting together to do this on a national level 
And I was just like, no, everyone just kind of glossed over. Yeah, when you get a bunch of kind of, and I, I don't, I'm not trying to stigmatize any mental illness or any anything along those lines by saying this, but it's just like, bad, when you get a bunch of damaged people together, that it's not going to all be good. Some of those people are going to be really shitty to each other and do horrible things to each other because that's yeah. kind of what happens. And then the instinct, especially for in any subculture, is all of that. It, comedy is, as someone who was a stand-up for, it still is a stand-up, it's just like the amount of time that like things were readily known secrets is just like it seems to boggle the mind everyone outside of the community but i was just like when all a bunch of the stuff you know about sexual pre predators came out about like the slam community i was just like it was like oh yeah i don't remember this from the stand-up community oh oh and it's happening more in the stand-up community oh it's happening in every subculture it's like yes. yeah you know you know and, and, and i look at it like cliche as it is um I'm that kid that was like bullied and friendless in school. So I found punk rock. Yeah. And didn't want to, for a really long time, have to like confront the realities of, yeah, this is a subculture that like has all these ethics and ethos that you hold dear, but this is also a microcosm of human beings. Yeah. Like partially, you know, again, like, I, I speak in cliches, but like punk rock and hardcore saved my life. So it was really, really difficult for me to go. I'm going to take this thing that I literally am alive because I found it and scrutinize it and, you know, cast off the, the rotten parts. Right. So um, I, I wanted to kind of like sort of pick your brain just as someone who was kind of a part of both of these communities as like, do you run it? Have you run into like the exact it? Because I've had this experience where you run it. It's like almost like the exact same issues come up in 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 each subculture. They handle them a little bit differently, kind of. But just the yeah. parallels are just fascinating. I just wanted you to kind of maybe address. Oh them yeah, a like bit. there like, there <laughs> there are times that it has been identical. Um, <laughs> you know, like uh. Subculture A has usually straight, white, cisgendered men who are in positions of influence and power and use those positions of influence and power to prey on people who are of lesser influence and not as much power. Am I talking about slam poetry or am I talking about hardcore? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's just like, uh, pick one. <laughs> here's an artistic subculture that... Uh, most of the voices that are elevated and championed as being like flag bearers are straight white middle-class male. Right. Is that slam poetry or punk rock? Right. And, you know, thankfully both of those institutions are making like massive changes. Um, you know, people are recognizing the inherent fucked upness of being like an all straight white dudes club. Right. And how epically problematic that that is yeah um you know we're we're slowly little by little starting to um be more proactive about uh 
removing predatory individuals from our midst rather than waiting until things happen and then people start talking and then going, oh, shit, we have to do something about this. Yeah. Um, yeah, like the, <laughs> but also it's like I said, it's each like punk, hardcore, slam poetry, stand up comedy. They're all microcosms of society that like the people who find them might be different, but it's still humans. Yeah. And so, you know, eventually, uh, you know, you zoom out enough and you're going to realize like patterns are patterns. Yeah. Uh, I remember April Ranger once asked me was like, <laughs> whether misogyny was a big, was a bigger problem in the nerd community. And I was just like, no, it's, it's a problem in society. It's just that it's hyper focused. It was like, and then Pat Oswalt had this great quote: was "Like no one excludes harder than the formerly excluded." <coughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just—it's just like, yep. Uh, so, as because I don't want to take up too much of your time, uh, a couple of things that I wanted to go over because you, you talked about it. So I have this thing, uh, even though I do know you, uh, of people who uh, I have on the podcast about stuff that they are really into that kind of when they start to talk about it other people are like what the hell and i have a <laughs> feeling i know what yours is because you brought it up at the very beginning but i i do want to talk a little bit about your your obsession with trains oh yeah <laughs> you know I mean, you said like you don't want to take up too podcast. much of my time and then you oh you, you lead <laughs> off with hey let's talk about this thing that you will talk about to exhausting lengths all the time <laughs> like, so just brief, sort of briefly, how did that start? What what it what? Like <laughs> <laughs> I I don't exactly know. I mean, somewhere when I was a kid. Okay, so there's a story that my mother tells um, that when I was so young that I was still sleeping in a crib. Um, the house that my parents lived in was right next to an active freight rail line. Okay. And so the trains would pass by my bedroom window. And apparently from the way my mother says, I would like pull myself up to the edge of the crib so I could peek out the window. And I would just like, choo, 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 choo. Um, I took a trip by train with my family to go to Milwaukee, Wisconsin once when I was maybe 12 or 13. Um, and that almost certainly imprinted something. Uh, and then I like years and years and years go by and, and now I'm, uh, allegedly an adult, or at least I have my own disposable income. And so the government tells me that I can do things without my mom saying it's okay. Right. Um, so like I ended up taking a train trip to Chicago with a buddy of mine just because, Hey, why not? And then I remembered, Oh yeah, these are really cool. Um, is, so is it like, is it riding in trains or is it like oh, oh it's all of it like i okay. love riding trains i will you know I, I will regularly like if i get a three-day weekend um and i have three days off in a row from work i'm gonna hop on amtrak and i i can tell you the exact loop uh i will take the northeast corridor from boston down to dc i'll spend six or eight hours in dc then i'll take capital limited to chicago i'll spend 12 hours in chicago and i'll take the lakeshore limited back home i'll do that in three days and it like 
I love Chicago as a city, and it's a great place to just kind of kick it and hang out. I don't particularly care about getting to Chicago as much as I care about the fact that I'm on a train. <laughs> so it's interesting. Um, I have a similar thing as someone who grew up in New York City about riding the subway. I know a lot of people denigrate it, but I have I used to – one of my favorite things when I was in college and even before then was taking – the train from like the Bronx out to back when there was a line that did this. Uh, so from the Bronx up by like the Bronx zoo, all the way, all the way out to Coney Island. So like, so up to where Van Cortland park is all the way to the beach and then back to my home. I used to just love doing that. So that element I do, I do kind of get that. element. But also, but also it's just like, I uh, <clears throat> I am on my fifth year of subscribing to Trains Magazine. Okay. Okay. Um, which is like a trade publication for the railroad industry. Sure. Um, I, whereas in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, I was spending all of my free time on the internet watching YouTube videos of early two thousand slam poets. I have three different YouTube channels that I subscribe to that are just trained rail fan videos. Okay. Okay. Um, so like I, I have been known to just go down, like, because I live an hour away from Boston, I'll take, I'll drive down or I'll even hop a bus, take 93 down to South station and just sit for a few hours and watch trains come in and out. So it's, it's, it's actual train because you were, you were the, so there was another, there was a comedian that I actually interviewed, uh, who his biggest obsession is model trains. Like, he, he loves building, like, the tracks, and, like, he also subscribes to a magazine. So, for you, it's not necessarily – I mean, I don't know. You can tell me. Um, it's I mean, actual I, I don't get into model, model railroading because I have an asshole cat. <laughs> That's fair. Um, <laughs> and she's currently sitting on my chest and purring. But if I were trying to build a model train, she would be terrorizing it. Sure. That makes sense. Um, but, yeah, no, it's just everything, like – um, you know, I can, I can wax philosophical about the fact that like of all of the modes of transportation, uh, that are out there, uh, rail travel is the one that for quite a few generations has strived to be the most accessible to the most forgotten. Um, I mean, sure. places, you know, places that like, again, I'm going to go back on my, I'm going to get that chip on my shoulder coming from Pennsylvania, like. You know, you hear people from the coastal cities refer to towns such as the one I grew up in as flyover country. Right. Because, you know, obviously the only places in the entire country that anybody would want to go are the big cities. Um, Amtrak goes, Amtrak has stations in towns with populations in the double digits. Yeah. There are places that Amtrak services that don't have any other form of public transportation at all. There are train stations that are the only access to the overall transportation infrastructure that people have within three hours. Um, and then you can flip that and talk about like the, <laughs> uh, the, the racism and the classism and the xenophobia that exists like in the underbelly of the railroad in industry. Um, yeah. You know how like, impoverished communities mostly communities that were primarily uh inhabited by people of color were always the ones that had the dirty freight line run through because we didn't want to 
bother the the rich white folk in the you know uptown there's all of that too and just like anything else that you love if you're if you're going to love it sincerely then you have to be willing to investigate its dark secrets too but i will say that you and i are similar i i I also i also i mean not in the same level probably that you do but i also have a certain love for trains and train travel uh i have it in i also have it in microcosm where as far as like the the history of the the new york city transit system our subway line like it's not this because it's it's different it's not railroad it's but it's it's like local but like we have one of the oldest you know subway systems in the country if not maybe the oldest i can't even remember now i don't think it actually is the oldest but it's one of the oldest and it's just like there's so like it's that but in microcosm <laughs> yeah uh so um, before yeah I, I just love trains everything about them sure <laughs> Uh, so before I let you go, uh, I just because I, I actually do this to you online all the time, but I kind of want to do this on the podcast. Is so who are you listening to, punk and hardcore, and who could you? Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be recent, but who, if you were to give like, I'm gonna limit it to five. I know that might be difficult, but like five bands that you would recommend to people. Oh man! Um, oh, if I'd known this question was coming, I would have written it down. <laughs> prepared uh, so a dissertation. I yeah, I get it. I totally uh, get it. <laughs> no, I, 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 I suffer from an affliction uh, wherein I am really, really bad at paying attention to new music, and habitually just go, "I'm going to listen to the thing that came out seven years ago." Sure. Um, and I, you know, like one of the records that has been in near constant rotation for me as of late is this, I guess, uh, the band is called altar of plagues. The album is called teeth to glory and injury. Okay. Uh, and it's just like, it's not punk or hardcore. It's, it's just like mm, atmospheric black metal, but not shitty. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> uh, I, I mean, like, like kind of in the same conversation as Death Heaven, but not at all the same, like undertones. Uh, and even that, like, is an album that came out five years ago. Um, you know, my favorite band of all time, Modern Life Is War, just dropped a new seven inch okay. that's coming out at the end of this month. Um, Tribulation Work Songs Volume Two. Um. There's a band that I was turned on to by a friend of mine earlier this year. I believe, I'm going to massacre the pronunciation. I'm sorry. I th- it's uh, Svalbard or Svalbard or some Norwegian town. Um, I, know, I think I know the one you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're, uh, they put out a record called It's Hard to Have Hope. Okay. Um, which has been fantastic. Um, I don't know. I'm just like freaking listen to whatever you want to listen to, but, uh, it, you should probably, by, by you, of course, I mean, whoever is listening to this podcast at the moment, sure. uh, that this goes live, you should probably listen to modern life is wars album witness, like okay. above anything. Sure. Like, I'm not going to recommend five. I'm just going to say, listen to that. Sure, I don't sure. care. Even if you hate it, like you don't have to like it. Just listen to it. Like listen sure. to it and read along with the lyrics. Um, and go from there. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, my big thing with with that is <laughs> what I often do is because I have you are one of a handful of people I know who listen to like some of the same like hardcore and punk bands that I would be into is I just kind of like for various I listen to this podcast called 100 Words or Less. Oh, I love that. Roy Harkins, yeah. That's not Ray Harkins, right? Ray Harkins, yeah. So it's yeah. basically basically uh I I just like if there's a band that he's interviewing someone that I don't already know, I just kind of kind of like add them to a list and I just try and find them. And then because I don't have like uh people immediately in my friend group anymore. I mean, I have Justin Wu and Mark Scripchek, but uh well, you kind of like text about that, but you're one of the other people who is, and of course, you've seen this on Facebook. I'll be like, so this bad thoughts and feelings. <laughs> uh, and the, the funny thing is, because like I've reached, uh, I, I've reached the level of aging punk where I grumpily refuse to listen to bands that I don't already know because I'm curmudgeonly. <laughs> yeah, of course. A lot of times you're like, hey, so what do we think of this band? And my first reaction is, I don't know because I haven't listened to them. And <laughs> right, you can't right. make me. <laughs> yeah, that's totally, <laughs> and that's totally fair. I, I, you know, there's that, I forget who had said it originally, originally, but I've, I've definitely heard it. It's just like, you just hit like your mid thirties and you're just like, yeah, I'm done. Yeah. With new music. <laughs> with new things. <laughs> so yeah, man, thanks for doing this uh and oh, of was, course it was great to talk to you I, I i i kept intending to come out to new england and especially manchester to like see sam for your die people because uh i miss all of you guys but like it hasn't happened yet but i hope we actually get to hang out again soon <laughs> but, i mean and, look you're you're not all that far away yeah like you're a four and a half hour train ride from South Station, and from there we're real close. Yeah, yeah. That, that's the thing is, is I I had especially this past summer I made like a, this is I might edit this part out, but it doesn't matter. I probably won't. But like I had like a couple major like I made like employment uh, shifted from working for someone else to going to business for myself. So it's like a bunch of stuff that was like, hey, I'm gonna take a trip to no. I'd like to go see these people. No, you can't afford that yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that was like two years ago. <laughs> well, and now, I hope and you now make it up this year, way, Next dude. year. This coming year, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> but in the meantime, thank you so much for talking to me and for driving and not dying <laughs> while talking to me. <laughs> Absolutely. I am... Uh, I am safe at home sitting in my chair with a cat perched on my shoulders. Sweet. All right, man. Uh, talk to you soon. All right. Be well. Later.